welcome to Top of Mind, the show where we talk to real estate industry insiders and experts about the biggest trends impacting the market today. Enjoy the show. Mike Simonson here. Thanks for joining me today. Welcome to the Top of Mind podcast. This is where I talk to the smartest leaders, thinkers, doers in the real estate and related industries. For a few years now, we've been sharing our latest market data every week in a weekly video series. With the Top of Mind podcast, we are looking to add context to the discussion about what's happening in the market from, from leaders in the industry. Each week, Altos Research tracks every home for sale in the country. All the pricing, all the supply and demand, all the changes in that data, and we make it available to you before you see it in the traditional channels. People desperately need to know what's going on in housing right now. It was so hot and so competitive, and the landscape has just changed dramatically. And so when people ask me, Mike, can I get data for local market? The answer is yes. Visit altosresearch.com, book free consultation with our team. We can dive into local data with for you and for your business. But really, we're here today to talk to my guest. So without further ado, I'm happy to introduce today, Clark Woodward. Clark is the founder CEO of Red Zone. Red Zone is the leading expert on wildfire analytics and the impact of wildfires on homes and businesses. Red Zone aggregates natural disaster response data and provides a platform for companies to easily understand and develop appropriate response to protect their assets. Clark is a firefighter, a data scientist, and an entrepreneur, and he has so he's the perfect combination to tackle this really, really important topic and timely issue. So Clark, thanks for joining me today. I got so much we want to cover. Wildfire in the American West and like it in the and the related topics of climate change and all of the risks that are around us. I can't wait to dive in. Thank you, Mike. I mean, it's awesome to be here. And I'm really excited for the opportunity to talk to you about housing, which is kind of an area that we don't necessarily get to explore here at Red Zone. So this is a really fascinating topic for me. Awesome. Terrific. Well, that's a great place to start. So like, I, I love that. Like, I, I'm interested in about Red Zone and about, you know, obviously in particular that like you're a firefighter and a data scientist. Tell me how that happens. And then tell me about, then tell us about Red Zone a little bit. Sure. So, you know, I got into this business because I lived in it. You know, I, I grew up and moved out to Boulder, Colorado. I was living in the hills in an area with super high wildfire risk. And I became a firefighter. I became a volunteer. And my education, I'm a map guy. I'm a map dork. I was building maps for the U.S. Geological Survey. And my fire chief said, hey, Clark, can you make us a map of all of the homes in our district? So I built some software to do that. And that software became popular among fire departments. And then big companies started coming to us. And you know, it's how we got into insurance is that people wanted to know where their homes were and what the risk was in the surrounding areas. So, you know, we really evolved through the need, you know, of our own local fire district and we've turned it into, you know, a business now for like 22 years. Amazing. And so when, when you look at the map, you're plotting homes on the map, are you are like assessing fire risk? 
of those homes for the like insurance companies or mortgage companies or something like that? Yeah, so you can think of an insurance company having homes all across the West. What do they need to know? Well, the first thing they need to know is which homes are exposed to wildfire. How bad would it be should one occur? And how frequent would they expect you know, those fires to, to happen? So we provide those analytics along with their concentration of risk. What could a really bad day look for, like for an insurance company to help them prepare for these disasters? But one of the cool things that we do is that we also provide real-time monitoring. So we are on top of every wildfire that happens across the US. And we tell our customers when they're affected by a wildfire and then often what they can do about it. So they might communicate out to their customers. Maybe they send an email with a map of every person's home and their distance to the wildfire to help them understand you know, how the event is really impacting the individual person. You know, you often hear that insurance companies are sending private fire trucks to help mitigate homes right in the head of a wildfire. You know, it's really common in California uh, where, you know, they'll try to save those homes in the, you know, in the event that we have a fire, you know, on the ground. That's often Red Zone's technology, putting those firefighters at the home for an insurance company. And so it's kind of one of the unique and, and really exciting you know, products that we offer. That's amazing. So, because obviously it's a lot cheaper to go hire a private fire truck and go clear some, stop some fire right before it gets to the neighborhood where you have exposure. Yeah, and you you hit it on, on the head right there. You know, what we do is we get a fire truck to help that home get prepped for the fire to arrive. We're moving furniture, we're, you know, spraying fire retardant, we're, closing windows and then when the fire arrives we're out of there you know and we are and and then it's the job of the fire departments to you know fight that fire so we're there to complement and really you know improve the chances of that home surviving the event that's amazing can individual consumers go to you and do that and book that you know it, it we we work sometimes with smaller hoa you know communities but it's really a game of having you know, not enough resources across a big geographic area. Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's best to have somebody like an insurance company who can move those resources around the state to where they're needed. You know, you have to be there at the right time. Man, that is so fascinating. Man, we have so much to talk about. So, so before we dive in, like, I'm, I'm really interested in the technology and the data that you're using. But before we dive into that, let's talk a little more broadly, you know, the one of the reasons that like I, I wanted to have you on is is you know I live in California I have a house in the mountains and it seems like the world is the fire risk in general but but natural disasters more broadly are increasing and increasing in in uh you know, impact. And, and so sometimes I wonder, is it like, is it all just recency bias? Like, do, am I just remember the most recent ones and therefore I think it's a lot, or is there data that says, yeah, Mike, the fires are getting worse and they're going to keep getting worse. What do we know? What does the data say? Well, I mean, clearly the data says that climate is changing and, you know, what we're seeing is we're seeing, you know, warmer waters, and probably most importantly across the US, we're seeing windier events. So we're having larger wildfires 
that are growing you know, unabated in this extreme weather. So the average wildfire size has increased dramatically in the last two decades. So those large wildfires you know, are the ones that can become the most damaging because they're really hard to fight. Um, you know, individual firefighters, the planes in the skies, they can't stop a 100,000 acre wildfire. Right. So we're seeing bigger fires that are more intense. And, you know, at the same time, we're seeing more and more people living in the communities. You know, we've had, you know, in the last 10 years, something like 6 million new homes in the wildland urban interface, you know, accounting for like 20 million people living so we are encountering these large wildfires because as a, you know, as a society, we're living in those areas where they're happening. Yeah, that's amazing. So it's, it, you said 6 million new homes that are at that wildfire, that the, the wilderness suburban edge, the exurbs that keep inexorably driving further out. Yeah, we call it the wildland urban interface. Wildland urban interface. Yeah. Yeah. And so do you have policy opinions on that? Like, should we stop or should we do something dramatic like like dramatically different building codes? What what do you think from from your perspective of like the the fires are getting worse and the people are getting more exposed? What what do we do? Well, I mean, with all complex problems, if there isn't a single solution. You know, if there was a single solution, we would have done it and we'd be, you know, on our way to recovery. Yeah. But realistically, you know, we have to approach this from both the individual structure as well as the forest health. You know, if we started with forest health, we can think of, you know, the last 70 years of fire suppression where we've made every effort you know, from the Forest Service and from the BLM and our other firefighting agencies to put every wildfire out. So what we've ended up with is we've ended up with forests that have not burned in a hundred years. And naturally, they should expect to have had wildfires, you know, two or three times a century, which reduces the amount of fuel we have in the forest. So now we have these forests that are over accumulated. And when they burn, they burn with a greater intensity which makes them larger and harder to put out and you know therefore more destructive. So from a policy perspective, you know we need to attack the forest health as a policy nationally. So we need to be putting, you know, prescribed fire down on the ground, be burning forests under our own terms where we can, you know, to some degree control the the, the intensity of that wildfire and reduce that fuel. You know, that's something we're seeing in the Inflation Reduction Act. There's, you know, $450 million toward forest health and, and climate resilience. And that is a step in the right direction. You know, so from a policy standpoint, we need more of that. And we need more of that long-term thinking where we're, you know, thinking about our forests over the next century and making them safer and healthier, you know, for us to coexist. Yeah, that's so... So that makes a lot of sense, obviously, and and it makes a lot of intuitive sense about you know forests need to burn, and and so fifty or more years ago we were still in active suppression mode. Are are we are we more in like is it more commonly accepted that we need to be in prescribed burn mode more frequently, or is there like is there still a camp that's resisting that very dramatically? Oh, I mean, there's definitely camps that are resisting it. 
it's a hard decision to make to let a fire burn, you know, in particular, because there's a higher chance that you're going to lose homes. And so you're putting people at risk knowingly and willingly. And that's an incredibly hard decision for, you know, a society to make. But it is, you know, they're, they're going to burn whether we want them to or not. So right. if you can control them. There's a growing movement to, you know, try to keep those fires that are allowed to burn and, you know, let them go with, you know, an understanding that it's toward the greater good, even though it puts some individuals at risk. Yeah, that's fascinating. So, yeah, it's like you could imagine, especially in a place like California, where you get like one homeowner that says you can't burn here and it stops the whole process from, you know, from happening and, and regaining health. Yeah. I mean, air quality is, is often a big target of prescribed burning. You can't burn if you're going to negatively impact the air quality and therefore put those citizens with respiratory issues and, you know, yeah. problems at risk. And so it is, you know, it's a complex dance to to host a prescribed fire in your community for sure. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. The, 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 so many constituents on that. That's really fascinating. Are there, are there places that we're currently built that you're like, man, that is nuts. We, we can't, we should not be doing that. Is it, is there any place that that's obvious, that that is obviously happening from, and, and like, from like, you know, where we are now, it maybe feels okay, but you know, the trends say that in 15 years, we're, they're all screwed. Is there anything like that that you can see? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, across the West, we could say that in high-risk areas, you know, it's insane to be building flammable homes. So, you know, there are high-risk areas where a home that is properly constructed with, you know, fire-resistant materials, with good space around the home that would, you know, would not have this kind of fire intensity. You know, that is a res that is a reasonably responsible place to build a home. But, you know, we see these, you know, millions of homes that are going up in high-risk areas that are difficult to protect. You know, they're dangerous for firefighters to be there. And, you know, they're made of combustible materials. And that, you know, that doesn't, that's, that's hard to swallow. And, you know, it's really a factor of, of the fact that that's where land is cheap. You know, housing is really expensive. And it's so it's completely understandable that people do it because that gives them the opportunity to be a homeowner, you know, where they may not be able to buy in downtown LA, but they can buy on the outskirts. So they can buy in those higher risk areas where land is cheaper. And, so, the, and the construction is cheaper with when you're putting up sticks too, right? Right. What uh, While we're on that topic of construction, are there... Are there... Like what, so, so what's a, what does a less flammable house look like? Like, what are we building? What, what should we be building from this? Like concrete cladding kind of those kind of things? Or what does it look like? Well, I mean, I think this is an exciting part of, of the, the market right now, because there's been a lot of research and there's finally been some data that helps us really validate what makes a home survive. And, you know, what, the way that I like to think about it is that when we think of a wildfire, we often think of it as the big flames that we see on TV because, you know, our, our eyes are drawn to it. But in reality, you know, the, the real driver of home loss 
is the embers that precede that wildfire. So a fire is you know, burning through the forest and it's lifting leaves and pine cones and you know, all sorts of material. And when it approaches your home, you, know, you have a billion embers up against your house. So when you think of home hardening, you're really protecting yourself you know, against those embers. So you know, we might start with the construction type. You know, a, a metal roof is better than an asphalt roof, which is a light years are better than you know, a, a wood roof. Yeah. You know, we know stucco is better than than wood siding. But, you know, the other things we got to think about is like, where are all those embers going to go? Can they get into my eaves? Can they get into my vents? Can they get under the house? And so when we harden that house and we walk around, and we think of all those places that, you know, would help that home survive. It's going to be to survive that ember shower. And, you know, you have to think about the surrounding forest. If you have flames up against your house, your probability of survival will go way, way down. So removing the fuel, you know, the, the grass from around your house, mowing, limbing, you know, and removing trees, even selectively from around the house, you know, will keep those flames from getting close. And then you've got to survive that ember shower. And that's really a sort of a one-two punch of home hardening is, is defensible space and, you know, the, the materials and the ember. Yeah, the, the, the community that I have my home in is really uh, aggressive about defensible space. And it's probably seems to me it's probably a change from even maybe 20 years ago. They were probably doing the opposite of that. Like you can't cut down trees and, you know, they're probably like, I, I don't know when that transition happened, but my guess is that, you know, 20 or 25 years ago, they were prevent, they were like still preventing people from that. And, and they've moved into a really aggressive defensible space, you know, with citations on homes where you haven't, done the the upkeep do you is that true in most of the risky areas around there? like are the local like the 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 authorities that whether it's county or whatever like are they starting to be more enlightened and and working harder on this well i mean i think there's an acknowledgement to the scale of the problem no doubt about it but i think you have to remember that the you know the history of the west was a history of, of independent, free spirit, and you know the ability to for you to live or a person to live and have no one tell them what to do. So you know that has carried forward to a really a lack of building codes, which have enabled very flammable homes to be built. And so it is you know it is very difficult. It's both politically difficult and from a regulatory standpoint, you know, difficult to, to implement building codes. And that only really addresses new home construction. So, you know, we've seen in, in California where, you know, after building codes were required that the home losses of homes built after the 1970s has been, you know, ex extremely limited compared to those that were built, you know, prior to the implementation of building codes. So we know building codes have a positive impact. Yeah. Wow. Right. And so the, uh, yes, the history of the American West is you know, like self-reinforcing on that topic, I suppose. Like the. Yeah. I mean, it's certainly, you know, it's expensive to retrofit a home. So you have a home that is flammable. You would, as a homeowner, you acknowledge the problem. Now, what do you, you know, to replace your siding, to replace your roof, to, to make fundamental changes to your home is really expensive. And you know, I think where we're seeing success is in programs, either state or federally, 
where the federal government will you know provide you or you know you can get a, a low cost loan to do some of that retrofitting. Oh, you know, right. That's that's a place where I think there's a lot of promise for homeowners to you know who have the intent to do the right thing is to give them the ability, the financial ability to then go execute and, and change the combustibility of their home. Interesting. That's that's encouraging. Like it's it's like, yeah, you know, you gotta put a new roof on that thing. That's tens of thousands of dollars. And you can I can like very easy to put off that decision and hope that it makes it one more year. Yeah. Yeah. So having having a federal program for 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 doing that is really that's really, really fascinating. Do you do you you might get the same kind of questions I do, which is on the, on people are are like ask they because I do analyze the real estate market. People ask me all the time, should I buy a house now? Is it a good time to buy a house? You know, should I buy should I buy a house in Tahoe? And one of the things that I discuss, especially when they're talking about buying, you know, in Northern California, it's like, like, I don't know, given the direction of fires and in the smoke in the state now, like if I, like, is that, is that something I'd recommend? Is that, you know, and, and, and like, I remember, like, I've been in, I've been in San Francisco for 20 five years and, and almost, and, and I, in the first couple of decades, maybe smoke one time and now smoke every year. Like it seemed like in San Francisco. And so when people, do people ask you like, should I be doing this or, you know, or, or what do you say when they ask? So what I say is that you got to go into it with eyes wide open. You know, you have to understand the risk that you're taking on if you're buying a house in Tahoe. You know, there's an, there's an acceptance of responsibility that you may lose that home to a wildfire. And, you know, whether that is the, you know, your ability to actually properly mitigate that, home, you know, to accept that insurance is going to be expensive if it's even, you know, available. So buying a house that you can truly afford and perhaps afford to lose, you know, is an important decision to make when you're buying a house in, you know, in California or kind of anywhere in the West. Yeah. You know, you... Go ahead. I was going to say, you know, this year has been pretty quiet. I mean, we had a couple of years of really hard, you know, wildfire season with lots of smoke and lots of losses. And, you know, for whatever reason, this year has been reasonably quiet, you know, across the West. And, and so, you know, some years will be bad and we need to remember those and not forget them, even when we have these quieter years. Yeah, we had one in, in Northern California, one big one for a few weeks that really smoked out most of much of the state this year, which is definitely, definitely lower than, than recent years. You know, I think maybe it was last spring, there was the, it was in Boulder where it was like, there's still snow on the ground, but the grass was burning. Like there was some kind of phenomenon like that happening. Is that, yeah. remember? You remember it correctly. You didn't get the season correct. It was- oh. Between Christmas and New Year's. So December 29th, 
and we had an ex you know it was extremely dry there was not a lot of snow on the ground but it was cold and it was really windy and a fire started you know just east of the mountains and and pushed miles across these grasslands and then ignited the edge of the community you know and led to losses of you know more than a thousand homes in a matter of hours <clears throat> yeah and that's you know I think that's the type of event, as I was mentioning before, it's about the wind, you know, those extreme winds, those hurricane force winds that just make, you know, fire impossible to, to fight, but also produce those embers that were carried, you know, well ahead of the fire. And then when the homes started to burn, those, you know, the embers from those homes and all of that combustible stuff in your house started falling on the neighbors and, you know, and leading to that structure to structure ignition that was really, you know, was the driver of that, you know, just phenomenal amount, numbers of losses. That's incredible. And is that unique to have happened in December, a fire like No, I mean, unfortunately not. It was unique to have that density of the numbers of losses. But, you know, we can think of all of these fires. I mean, we're under red flag warning, you know, today, and it's chilly, but it's dry and it's windy. And, you know, that's, that's where the risk comes from. Yeah, when we're here, we are. It's late October, and uh, and we have the same in Tahoe. You know, it it is pure fire conditions, and it's it's like you know, it could snow next week and and calm that down. But but man, it's it seems late in the year for to be red flag. Scenario. Well, yeah, I mean, you can think of it. You have these weather patterns that come across the the west, and they're pushing ahead of them, ahead of a cold front these extreme winds. So you'll get 100 mile an hour winds, and then 12 hours later or four hours later, you'll get six inches of snow. And the two are you know, intricately connected because that, that weather pattern is causing the wind. And on the backside of it is the snow. Uh, yeah, yeah, for sure. So let's switch gears for a second. Let's talk about the red zone and, and like the technology and, and like what data goes into the risk calculations what what can you measure for a property level well you know you you start with data that is mostly geographic and, and topographic so it's the slope the aspect the fuel type you know how tall is it how dense is it and you know you combine that with weather data what is the worst case scenario of weather in a particular area and if you combine those two, you can get a sense of the, or a, a measure of the severity of that wildfire. How intense would it be? How large would it grow? And that gives you a, a good understanding of, of the likelihood of loss should a fire occur at that property. But then you really need to look at the frequency. So we use millions and millions of scenarios where we where models you know, start wildfires and see if they grow to a large size. And so we have, you know, 100 million simulations in our database that then allow us to look at the probability. In a given year, what's the likelihood of having a wildfire at this house or that house? Is that like a Monte Carlo simulation? Is that, what, is that like that kind of probability that you're doing? Exactly. And, you know, you can think of there are some areas that are high elevation and, you know, the fire season is much shorter. It's, you've got snow on the ground, You've got, you know, moist, moist weather. And what it, you know, what it really ends up with is that you have a lower probability of actually having a fire. If you look at the front range of Colorado, you know, there's a very high probability you have lots of high fire weather days. 
And so that's what that frequency is helping us measure is to really tease out, you know, which homes are more likely to burn in a given year or which regions are more likely to burn in a given year. Yeah. So when I look at, when we're looking at a community, we know that things like house build on the ridge at the top of the ridge is at more risk than, than down in the valley. Is that, is that like a, a common assumption about like the firebirds up the hill and yeah, you're looking at clear like fire mechanics. What you know, how how quickly can a fire build its intensity as it comes up a slope and then you know arrives at your home at the top of the slope with a greater intensity than it would if you were at the bottom and it was you know just beginning to kind of come up that hill. Yeah. So of those variables, are the things like, dude. You, you built your house at the top of the hill versus the bottom. Is that more important versus, or is it more like a, like, look, man, this is the front range of Colorado. It's going to burn. Like wh which of those, how do you weight those in the, in the probabilities or how do they end up falling out? So I would say that it's, it's more of the, you know, understanding where large fires have occurred is probably more important than where you are, you know, on the slope. Okay. Yeah, there's an there's an uncertainty to wildfire because you may lose your home, you know, due to that those embers that you know come from a, a fairly small wildfire, but you know have a place to land at your home, and you know that's what's going to cause you or be you know create a more certain loss. Yeah. yeah. Huh. That's really fascinating. Are there are there advances in the data science that are making it more useful or more able to prevent loss? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, there's there's all sorts of technology coming on the market. Uh, you know, some of the exciting things that we see are, you know, cameras being really positioned across the states. And, you know, look at California, we've got, you know, we've got access to cameras that pretty much pick up the vast majority of wildfires. And if you can if you can detect them and really understand that you've got a fire burning and and put resources on that fire and keep it small, you know you have you have solved part of the problem. So that initial attack, that really effective initial attack with all of the resources that you have, you know makes you know makes a, a material impact on on losses. That's cool. So, so the cameras that are out there, they're on like they're on like cell towers or whatever that that are sitting out there, and they can scan over. And so, those are detecting fires before they were detected previously. Is that true? Yeah, you've got people, you know, you people and artificial intelligence that takes those camera images that can detect what a smoke column looks like, and you know, and really determine. Okay, we've got a fire. We're going to you know, alert the authorities, we're going to put aircraft in the air, firefighters on their way. And the faster you can get there, you know, you keep it small, then, you know, you've, you've done something, you've done something good with technology. That's fascinating. My, my brother was a smoke jumper for a bunch of years in the, in the nineties and, and out of Montana. And, and so that's the, you know, they flying them out there, one or two guys to a little column of smoke somewhere in the middle of the mountains and drop parachute them in. And, and so are those smoke jumpers getting to fires faster now? I would say, I mean, there's, there's, 
you know, fire detection in satellites, there's fire detection in aircraft, you know, there's a lot of military, you know, military technology that's now being used for civilian purposes in fire. So there's a number of platforms that are helping to detect those fires. And, you know, combine that with severity models where you could say, I have 100 fires that are burning right now, which ones have you know, the recipe to become a big fire? Um, and then you can allocate your resources to the right place, you know, and, and as we coordinate better as a, you know, as it, across the agencies, we can get those resources there faster. Yeah, and make better decisions. I could imagine that, that in previous decades, the decision about which of those fires to go drop the smoke jumpers onto was, you know, some manager's gut feel, somebody who'd been there for 40 years, and they were like, that one's going to burn, go to that one. And now we have we have other ways to confirm that or schedule or prioritize. Exactly. Yep. Super cool. Are there other technologies that you're like jazzed about that are going to help us through this transition of climate risk? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I would say from an insurance perspective that the you know what we call insuretech, it is you know the technology that insurance companies have available to them is just exploding. And, you know, traditionally insurance companies would build their own systems, these megalith systems that would, you know, exist for years and years and be really hard to connect with. But InsureTech is, has allowed them to be more nimble, that they're combining information. I want, you know, to make a, an underwriting decision, maybe I'm going to incorporate weather data and I'm going to incorporate, you know, the fuel in the surrounding area and I'm just a more nuanced decision about a home. And probably what's most exciting to me is that it's the availability of mitigation information. What has this homeowner done to make their home more survivable in an event? And if you can incorporate that into a decision that you know, is based in science and you can do that in a way that's, that's acceptable to the regulatory environment, you know, having this detail really allows an insurance company to make an appropriate decision for the business and for the homeowner. And I think that's probably the most exciting technology that we see. That's great. And then and I suppose that that's a positive feedback loop in that if I can tell my insurance company I'm doing good work and then that that brings back either cost benefits or even like you're not getting dropped like that, that helps encourages me to do good work on my and defense, making my home defensible. Yeah. I mean, even this week, we saw the California Department of Insurance make regulatory changes, you know, requiring insurance companies to take some of this information into account when they oh, make a decision great. on eligibility or on your renewal, you know. So it's it's kind of the toe in the water on, you know, the mit incorporating mitigation and a homeowner's good efforts into that decision-making process. That's but, great. Yeah. It, uh, is, it, is it a general trend that the regulators are, are doing better? That. <laughs> well, I mean, a, you know, that's a dangerous question to answer. You know, the regulators are there to protect the, you know, the consumer and ensure fair practices and, you know, access to insurance and, you know, reasonable price, you know, rates for homes. So as our climate changes and as our fire risk has increased exponentially, you know, we've, we've definitely had that conflict between the insurers and the regulators, which, you know, 
which has led the regulators to not change their stance much. And maybe what we saw this week was a, it was a little bit of a move toward being more flexible and incorporating some more detailed analytical data into that decision-making and you know, allowing those insurance companies to be more somewhat creative in incorporating you know, more real-time data about the home itself, you know, into that decision making. And I think that's a it's a it's a positive move that, you know, addressing a multifaceted problem. Yeah. When I bought when I first bought my house in Tahoe, I remember we we're going to close on the mortgage and the the lender said, Okay, where's your insurance? And I, I called my insurance company that I'd had forever and they said, Nope, we won't and it it I had no idea that they, they wouldn't insure my home. And it took me a bunch of calls and we finally found one. And I'm, you know, most, I'm now on a, on a state of California plan that is a, a basically a backstop because essentially nobody's going to insure that house. And I had no idea that was coming. I, I like, so now I've got like state of California plan and a supplemental plan and, and trying to do all these things. And as a consumer, I'd, I bought that house. I had no idea. Yeah. I mean, you're not alone. Either, you know, millions of Californians and, and millions of, of residents around the West that are experiencing that same thing. You know, and we're seeing, you know, one of the concepts I think a lot of people aren't, aren't aware of is the reinsurance market, you know, primarily out of London is where insurance companies buy insurance on their insurance, you know, on their assets. And, you know, those costs have risen dramatically in the last two years, you know, after the fires of, you know, 2021 and through or 2019 through 2021, you know, reinsurance become, became much more, you know, expensive and limited. And that cost, you know, is definitely not passed down to the consumer, but incorporated into the decision-making of an insurance company. So they, they are not renewing. It may be because they can't get the insurance, you know, on, on the, and so people don't often understand that there's a, you know, a whole market sort of behind the insurance company's decision. And it's really impacting the individual consumer today. Yeah. We project all the nefarious evil insurance company decisions when it's, it can be very straightforward. A couple of those factors, it's, they've got a market that they have to deal with, but they also have a regulatory environment that says what they can charge even if they assess the risk to be higher they can't account for it and then therefore they say therefore we can't insure in this state like we can't make it happen yeah yeah fascinating so we've been talking about fire and the climate risk especially in american west about that is that is impacting the growth in wildfires and the risk from wildfires do you guys look at other climate risks, other things that are changing around the country, around the world that turn into disasters that are analogous to fires in the American West? Like we just had Hurricane Ian in Florida. Do you guys look at that stuff? Yeah, I mean, I think we, you know, we do from a couple of different ways. You know, one, Red Zone as a company monitors hurricanes, earthquakes, you know, other natural disasters, because part of our specialty is, is having that public safety background and helping a, you know, a company unravel all the messy data about a disaster and make a dis business decision, like a fast business decision. You know, and so we do this in Japan and we do it in typhoons and earthquakes. And so, you know, the model that we provide in the expertise, the human intelligence aspect, you know, is applicable. But, you know, I think we're in Hurricane Ian, 
you know, we saw some real success stories about the mitigation and hardening. And you know, we saw some communities that were built on, you know, with solar panels, they, their infrastructure was underground. The community was built to survive an event and they survived unscathed. And I think that's so heartening when we think of the scale of the challenge that we have in the West is that we can build communities that can survive these fires, but we just have to do it, you know, with a, with a long-term vision and, you know, and the, the resources to make that investment. So we can do it right. And I, I, we saw it in Hurricane Ian, and I think it's just, it's, you know, it's a good lesson for us to take as we make these hard decisions in the West is that, you know, we're seeing examples of it working. And I, that was heartening. Yeah, so that's interesting. I didn't realize it. So there were real success stories about how to build a hurricane-proof community. You're building on an island, right? You know, in the in the in the hurricane path. That so there were some good success stories there. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, neat. That's really great. Are there other things that we can we can be optimistic about? Like you know, in 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 that thing. Like if you're looking forward. Like we talk about climate risk and it's kind of a pessimistic, you know, bent. It's a little fearful. Are there other things that you see that we should be optimistic about or that you're like optimistic trends that you see that are optimistic in the world? Well, you know, I think the availability of, of data is, you know, from a personal standpoint, really, you know, exciting to me is, you know, homeowners just so often will do the good work and not receive the benefit. And I think that, you know, five years ago, I would have said to a homeowner, you know, in a very skeptical tone, that they're never going to see the benefit of it. You know, I'm sorry that, you know, the industry is not there. But today, I think, you know, we're seeing that those changes of data being used for better business decisions and, you know, having that impact the homeowner. And I think that's really encouraging people to do that hard work. And so, you know, that's, that's what keeps me coming to work every day. Really, that you that feel that real positive impact for for the consumers. Exactly, that's cool. That I love that the comments about doing earthquake work in Japan. Are you doing down to the property level? Like, can you look at the maps and the fault lines and say, this guy's on a liquefaction zone and this guy's not, and therefore risks are like? Do you have that level of of analysis for for earthquake work? Yeah, so when we look at earthquakes, we're we're talking about the event. So say you have a million policies under your portfolio and a big event happens. We're going to categorize those. And those homes that are at the epicenter, you know, are likely damaged. And an insurance company, if they know that, can just open a claim and start getting money out to that homeowner to, you know, start to recover their life. So they don't have to visit it in, in Japan. They can just open the claim and start to pay you out. For those, you know, homes that are on the outskirts, you know, maybe that's where an insurance company takes their people and they send those people to visit those homes. And then all the way out of the outer ring, maybe you just send them an email and ask the homeowner, have you experienced damage? And therefore, can we, you know, reach out to you and get a claim started and help you recover and fix that damage? So what we're doing is we're helping people triage the problem quickly and, you know, and act on it. And we're taking our lessons and our experience from public safety and applying it, you know, to a commercial business where they don't necessarily have that expertise. Right. Oh, that's fascinating. It's so fascinating being in the the growth industry of natural disasters. 
<laughs> yeah, certainly not going away. Wow, that's super, super cool. So are there are are there things that we like if you pay attention to the science, we know that climate risk, we we can you can see the data about climate risk increasing. We can see the wind and the the temperature changes, we can see we can see hurricane frequency, those kinds of things. And so those are pretty well known. Are there trends that you see, especially things that like that we should think about as as just homeowners in this world? Are there trends that you see that aren't being talked about enough? Are there risks? Are there things in the in the data? I mean, to me, as a homeowner in the West, the thing that keeps me up at night is water, is the availability of you know of water for my community. And to be honest, the West just feels parched. You know, you look at at our reservoirs, you know, the reservoirs that are feeding California are, are drying up. And so from an acute standpoint, I think water is going to drive decisions on community development and housing as, you know, as much as wild wood. And so, you know, I think that, that we're heading toward some tough decisions on who gets water and which community survives in the, ne- in the coming decades. Yeah, that I I am really with you on that. <clears throat> to a large degree, the story of the American West of the last 150 years is a story of water. Exactly. And and we are in a dramatic change. Have you seen communities doing things well with water? Like I think, for example, San Diego's done some really good desalinization de- investment and things like that. Have you seen other other places doing making good wise water decisions? Yeah, I mean, I think the, the cultural shift around, you know, around how we use our water, whether it's on the agricultural front, on the residential front, you know, as we see communities take a more zero, you know, a, a zero scaping approach where they're not, you know, wasting water on things that are, are not fundamentally needed. I think that's really important. Right, 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 right. So we make some hard decisions on on uh, swimming pools and golf courses and almond farms. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. You know, Clark, this is really terrific. I I could go for a long time. We're getting close to the top of our hour though. So are there one thing I love, you know, do you, do you, do you publish much? Do you write like LinkedIn or anything on, on things you're seeing in the world? Do you ever, do you get to, to, to write so that my listeners can go follow up and read some of your stuff? You have anything like that? Yeah, we've got a we've got a weekly blog that comes out that is, you know, educational, you know, on the topic of wildfire and includes current events. So, you know, if if people are interested, they can go to our website www.redzone.co and sign up for our blog and they'll they'll get information. Great. The blog on redzone.co. You got it. Awesome. That's great. Uh Clark a real pleasure. Like it, this is exactly where I wanted to go and help understand about what we we need to know about wildfires and climate risk in the in the in the world. I am am encouraged by some of the things we talked about, and so that's useful to me. I so I really appreciate your insights. Anything else we want to make sure we get out today? No, I think it's always fascinating to talk about this, especially with a resident of the West. You know, somebody who lives and breathes it, and I. I think that's so important that that this topic, you know, affects you individually 
as well as you know your customer base and and you know the community at large so yeah it it certainly does i think about it a lot and about you know where do i spend my future you know i think about san francisco proper is uh, is maybe one of the best insulated places from climate risk it's it's cool and stuff but but you know it's the middle of october and i can tell it's a hot night in in san francisco because the because the coconut oil melts <laughs> above 70 degrees in my kitchen and and we don't you know, there's no air conditioning in, in san francisco and yeah. so it's like that can happen in july but when it happens in october i'm i'm starting to be a little uh, a little suspect and we had that this week as that big heat wave over the the west but mostly i feel insulated but then that that part of the world is not that big. You know, we're like right in San Francisco. Yeah, exactly. How do you feel about being in the mountains of Colorado in the next couple of decades? So, I mean, it feels it feels dry and it feels hot and you know, it's it's snowing less. I worry about my kids. You know, we live just outside of Aspen and I grew up, you know, skiing. We moved here to ski and I'm worried about my children and their children being able to experience that, you know, deep powder snow. I just don't think it's going to be around. It's the skiing industry is changing. And, you know, we're seeing that in our generation as, you know, the climate just creates less snow. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, the world cup ski season starts in Banff, Canada in like two weeks. And, and it was 85 degrees there this week. <laughs> mm. So we got some. We got some. Uh, we got a new, a new, new territory in front of us. I suppose. Yep, I would agree. All right, thanks, Clark. Thanks so much. I really, really appreciate it. All right, everybody. That's the Top of Mind podcast. I'm Mike Simonson. Always visit us at altosresearch.com. Go to redzone.co for the blog to learn about wildfires and the topical interest of the news that's happening around fires in the country. And Clark, thanks so much. Thank you, Mike, for a fascinating hour. Thanks for listening to Top of Mind. See you again next time and be sure to click subscribe to get future episodes.